Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is partisan polarization. Is it crippling Congress? My guest is Frances Lee. She's a professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University and a top scholar on Congress. She is the author and co-author of many articles and books on Congress and has written for popular publications, including The Atlantic Magazine and The New York Times. Most recently, she and James Curry published the book, The Limits of Party, Congress and Lawmaking in a Polarized Era, which analyzes and addresses the subject of today's podcast, which is polarization in our national legislature. Professor Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. Let's start by ensuring that we all are on the same page, you, I, and listeners alike. When we speak of Congress, what do we mean by the term partisan polarization? Well, partisan polarization has multiple meanings. And that I think that's probably why you began with this question. Um, a layman's or a dictionary definition of, the, of polarization means um, division into two sharply contrasting groups. Congress is clearly polarized in this sense. Congress uh, sees much more partisan conflict. Conflict in Congress breaks down more reliably on partisan lines than it did throughout most of the 20th century. We routinely see votes that pit 90% or more of Democrats against 90% or more of Republicans, a, a partisan divide that's more deep and predictable than we used to see. However, by partisan polarization, political scientists often mean something more technical. In its most rigorous form, the concept of polarization is grounded in spatial theory. It rests on a theorized choice space in which policy preferences are ranged on an underlying continuum from left to right. In this sense, parties become more polarized as the preferences of members become more distinctly bimodal and as the two modes, each party's mode, move farther apart from one another. It's far from clear that parties are polarized in this second sense. The problem is that the issues at stake in congressional politics are diverse. On some issues, the par congressional parties have moved closer together, and on some issues, they've moved farther apart. There's little doubt that the post-Trump parties in Congress are farther apart on immigration than they were. There's a growing partisan divide opening up on transgender issues. Clearly, the parties are farther apart today on issues relating to the COVID pandemic than they were in March of 2020. But on other issues, the parties have moved closer together. Republicans and Democrats differ less on trade policy today than they did, with the Republican Party having moved more in a protect toward a more protectionist stance under Trump. 
the budget deficit and government spending became less partisan during the Trump years as both the both parties came together around an unprecedented response to the COVID pandemic. Trump presided over a uh, significant reform of criminal justice policy. It was bipartisan. Republicans and Democrats in Congress have worked together on foreign policy a lot over the past decade, from sanctions on Russia to the huge Ukraine aid package under Biden. There's reporting here in the lead up to the congressional elections of 2022 that the, that Rep the Republican Party has given up on the issue of Obamacare repeal. So have the parties moved farther apart or are they closer together? I have no idea how to characterize the parties in an absolute sense. And it depends on what issue you're talking about. Uh, and I'm not sure how you go about averaging across all the diverse issues on the congressional agenda to say that the parties are farther apart ideologically than they used to be. I think it's clear that, the, that Republicans and Democrats are more partisan in their voting behavior. But what that means in terms of ideology is contested. Right. So just to follow up on that question, um, you know, earlier you referenced that when you look at voting behavior in Congress, you know, when you get these clusters of 90 percent of Democrats voting for something and 90 percent of Republicans voting against it, it sounds like, you know, one temptation we have is to associate that with the legislators themselves believing very different things rather than the possibility that some are simply voting strategically, voting with their crowd for other reasons, perhaps getting through the primaries or something. Is, is that right? That's right. Absolutely. Of course, nothing produces more reliable partisan voting than questions of procedure, as in, you know, who's going to control the, uh, the, the floor agenda? Um, the majority party supports its leadership in controlling the floor and the minority party contests it. And that can, you know, continually produces uh, uh, party line voting. But what does that mean in terms of the party's larger ideological agendas? It's not clear. It's this contest for power over, over the agenda, just as uh, when you reference issues of, of uh, upcoming elections, um, there's positioning of uh, relating to that, you know, the elections are zero sum. And so, you know, the, the the stance that you want to portray your party as having on an issue that that, you know, you can cast votes with an eye to that rather than, uh, uh, you know, expecting those votes to have any effect on public policy. Right, right, right. We shouldn't confuse, uh, you know, symbolic action in some cases with uh, the essence of the matter and assume that people have lost negotiating space that may actually exist. So I feel like those of us who pay attention to Congress have read so many articles of one sort or another, which say we are a way more polarized Congress and a way more polarized nation than ever before, or at least in recent memory. That seems to be a bit of an overstatement then based upon what you're telling me. <laughs> Intense partisan conflict is not new <laughs> to U.S. politics. I think it's probably the normal state of affairs. Uh, the decades after the Great Depression, in which an internally divided Democratic Party enjoyed nearly continuous majority status for decades, was a period that was lower in partisan conflict 
than is typical for the whole sweep of U.S. history. It's probably a, an exceptional period rather than the norm, but it tends to be the period against which people tend to, to benchmark the present. And they say, well, it's more partisan than it was in the the 50s or the 70s or the 80s. And so those those decades then become the comparison point. My qualitative work looking at partisanship in Congress over time suggests that members of Congress virtually always say and probably feel and believe that things are worse now than they ever have been before. They've been saying that as long as as far back as I can find. They said it during the Reagan era. They said it under Clinton. They said it under George W. Bush. Um, They, of course, said it under Obama and under Trump. I even found members in the 1970s telling reporters that Congress had never been as partisan as it was then. Of course, the early 70s are the nadir of partisan conflict as far as uh, roll call voting uh, goes, but it didn't feel that way to members of Congress at the time. So I tend to take with a grain of salt all these claims that things are worse now than they have ever been before. Conflict is just endemic to Congress. Uh, I mean, I'm a political scientist, not a historian, but I haven't examined a a period in uh, in congressional history where there wasn't intense conflict on at least some dimensions in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, reading about the New Deal and Republicans, many of them were accusing the president and Democrats with essentially destroying the constitutional order. Uh, with taking over the economy, with being a dictator, uh, with possibly ushering in a new kind of American version of Ameri- of socialism or fascism or some sort of strongmanism backed by a, a, a potent party. Uh, that language was out there. And I think we, we, we forget it as we think back to the greatest generation and all those glorious years. I think we forget it as the issues that sparked such intense conflict fade. And so the current issues loom so much larger and we say, oh, it's so much worse now than it was then. But I think to a great extent, it's an illusion. So we certainly don't want to wave away polarization and just say it doesn't exist. And it sounds like you say that it certainly does exist, but it is issue specific as opposed to kind of a general ideological parting of ways between the parties? Is that is that fair to say? Well, I'm just a- agnostic on that second question because I, I really don't know how one goes about characterizing all the issues uh, before Congress uh, in a single abstract space. Uh, we see the parties move closer together on some issues and farther apart on others. We also know that they behave in more reliably partisan ways than in the past. So that's an objective fact about uh, about uh, life in Congress today. But how we interpret it, what it means for the stakes, the policy stakes, I think we need to view that um, issue by issue. Right. And I suppose the only thing that we can clearly point to and say, hey, this looks a little different than, say, 50 years ago is the voting behavior. The day when conservative Democrats would work with Republicans and, you know, push some sort of fiscal responsibility legislation or, you know, military uh, build-up legislation, those days seem to have disappeared for us, but maybe not. Well, what we don't see today is a uh, a, par- a party able to pick off a handful of members 
of the opposing party uh, to put together a bipartisan co- a small bipartisan coalition. But most everything that passes today that becomes law has big bipartisan support. So what you intend, what you see, I think, instead today is that uh, policy that becomes law is negotiated between both parties, the leadership of both parties. And so when something passes, it tends to command majorities of both parties, not uh, not a majority of one party and some moderate members, a handful of, of the other party. But on legislating, we see big bipartisanship today. Uh, that that really hasn't changed. Yeah. And this this gets to the crux of the issue. There's so much anxiety that Congress is broken that it just can't get things done and therefore all power is flowing to the executive branch and the judiciary in Congress is just this awful cacophony that's not making policy. Uh, that's a caricature, but based on your research, that sounds like that's not even remotely true. In fact, legislating is happening in a bipartisan fashion and on landmark and significant pieces of legislation, too. That's right. I mean, I think the congressional gridlock narrative has taken on a bit of a zombie status, and it persists in the face of a lot of evidence to the contrary. On congressional productivity, I see it as having been quite remarkable in recent Congresses. The COVID response 2020 was historically vast, by far the largest intervention, uh, crisis intervention in U.S. history, larger in inflation adjusted terms than the 2009 stimulus and the whole New Deal combined. You really can only compare it, uh, you know, in terms of the level of spending in 2020 with war production in 1943. And this was passed in an entirely bipartisan manner. And And the 2020 Congress, so this is the Congress in the last presidential election year did a whole lot more than COVID. It also passed an important energy environment package as part of the Corona bus at the end of the year, which was the most significant environmental legislation Congress had passed up until that point. It, in, uh, it passed a, uh, a large parks and conservation package, a new free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. And interestingly, a free trade agreement, a North American free trade agreement that had the support of labor, paid parental leave package um, for federal civilian workers. That was 2020. And then this Congress has continued with a frenzied lawmaking pace. It was kicked off with the American Rescue Plan, which was a huge package, only exceeded by the CARES Act that had, paid, that had passed in 2020, a major infrastructure authorization, a huge science and technology competitiveness law, the CHIPS bill a huge Ukraine aid package, a modest gun safety law. And then it managed to pass another big reconciliation bill, the multi-billion dollar Inflation Reduction Act. So I ask, you know, where is the gridlock here? I think that commentators tend to mistake the difficulties that parties have with passing their programmatic agendas with gridlock. You know, when they're frustrated that they're party isn't able to deliver on its platform, they say Congress is gridlocked. And Congress does have a really hard time passing partisan programs. And that's often because parties, majority parties, cannot agree internally, not because of of gridlock, you know, meaning the, you know, the ability of a minority party to block. Obamacare repeal and replace failed because Republicans couldn't get their whole party on board. The same was true of Biden's Build Back Better 
package. That failed. You know, they salvaged a small piece of it for the, with the Inflation Reduction Act because not all Democrats agreed. But even if Congress isn't passing a partisan program, it can be accomplishing a lot legislatively, which is what we have been seeing. These achievements, though, tend to get quickly passed over by a news media that focuses primarily on conflict, and it treats bills that pass in a bipartisan way as unimportant. Um, and so the, these make no impression or very little impression on the audience that follows public affairs closely. And they continue to see this this partisan gridlock story, uh, even where the evidence for it is uh, is really lacking. If we're looking at objective indicators, Congress is not passing less legislation by volume today than it was in the 1970s. You've probably seen the statistics that Congress passes fewer laws uh, today than it did in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, for that matter, which is true. But the laws that Congress passes today are much longer than the laws that were passing uh, in those other earlier decades. Omnibus legislating is the order of the day now, and those bills are so massive <laughs> That the amount of legislating, if we look at the total number of, of pages of legislation enacted by Congress, hasn't come down at all. So, again, I think, you know, we, you know if, we, if we look to the indicators, like, you know, we look at roll call votes and we can say that Congress is more partisan, but it's not clear that Congress is more ideological. Well, it's true Congress is passing fewer laws, but not true that Congress is passing less legislation. You know, what interpretation do you have? I, you know, I take a, a more skeptical view of, um, of the gridlock narrative as a consequence. I think you know, some, for somebody who was kind of bought into the gridlock narrative, they might be inclined to say, well, look what's happening with the nominations in the Senate. Uh, you know, they get dragged out and there's you know, so many cloture motions and et cetera, et cetera, that this feels to them like a a symptom of partisan polarization, you know, decent people being put up for important positions, but the positions are being left open because of mindless partisan obstruction by the other party. Uh, fair? Not fair? I mean, the data do show that uh, nominations languish long for longer before they are confirmed. Uh, as con as partisan conflict grew over nominations, you saw Congress move to short circuit the uh, ability of the minority party to filibuster those. I see in some ways, you know, the, the go, you know, going nuclear on nominations as returning more to a status quo ante where such uh, where nominees tended to be confirmed more expeditiously. Um, so Congress has adopted. So you could say Congress has adopted some institutional reforms to help move that along. Yes, indeed. You, you could say that. That's right. That's right. Well, um, as a closing question, one of the things I learned from your research some years ago was the reality that the two parties are competing for control of Congress more vigorously than they've had. They've done since you know the late 19th century or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there are consequences that naturally flow from that. And I feel that there has to be a connection between the whole anxiety over partisan polarization in the chamber and that competition. And it sounds to some degree that we're seeing that competition express itself, certainly in the rhetorical vitriol, which is getting nastier and nastier, it seems. But as you note, in the procedural votes, 
where the parties always vote separately for the most part on uh, on those sorts of items, uh, and on issues that are high salient to voters and presumably imagined to be electorally consequential to the parties. Do I have this right? What am I missing? I mean, party control of uh, either or both chambers could shift. And elections have just looked like that for a long stretch of time. Since 1980 in the Senate, since 1994 in the House, you know, the party out of power can easily see itself getting back in. And so it looks to try to define the stakes for voters to make the case that the party in power is doing a bad job and uh, that they should be thrown out and replaced. And so that, that those kinds of narratives are more pervasive in the public sphere because parties are putting them there. They have invested in a messaging infrastructure that has been built up in, by both parties in both chambers to try to drive narratives in the news media to make the case for their own uh, return to power. And the party in power holds its power insecurely and uh, is worried about uh, losing and uh, is, uh, is just as invested in trying to shape a positive uh, set of impressions uh, uh, of its performance. And so there's a lot more sensitivity towards the party's public image in an environment like that when they're, they're, they're both enmeshed in a close rivalry for power. And that's different than the seemingly permanent democratic majority of the 20th century, where the party out of power typically didn't even see a path back in. And so you, it was easier for ranking members on committees to cooperate with the committee chairs on bipartisan legislation because the party, the, the, the party out of power isn't looking to, to, to uh, embarrass the party in power and say they're doing a bad job. So there's a lot of messaging. Parties work a lot harder on putting forward uh, agendas today than they did. They, they typically didn't even bother putting forward uh, platforms before the elections in the 20th century, but now they do because party control is contested closely. Um, and so I, th I think we need to be sensitive to the fact that the congressional parties are exist for electioneering purposes, at least as much as they exist for policy purposes, and that a party can be very unified around its messaging and yet not be very unified in terms of its ability to carry out a program after the elections are over, um, and that we shouldn't assume that uh, – Unity and rhetoric immediately translates into cohesion uh, on a uh, in policy terms and on enacting a program. And thus, the long-term trend of politicians overpromising and underdelivering has been exacerbated. Yes. as you and Jim Curry noted in uh, at least a couple of pieces that uh, majorities in Congress can be much overrated because they presume far more cohesion on policy than typically actually exists. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that, that grows out of uh, an environment where parties are promising the moon and the stars to their voters if only they can uh, get into power or stay in power. And so, you know, they're amping up the, the promises they make in order to excite voters looking to elections, uh, elections that are so competitive. Professor Francis Lee, Thank you for helping us better understand partisan polarization and the limits of its effects on Congress.
My pleasure. Thank, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.